So this uh, lecture considers Anamenhij's ideas about an emotional connection to the earth. And my lecture centres on the Silhouetta series, which is over to my right, which is her most important work. So I want to start with two quotes from Mendieta that give you a sense of her concerns. The first one, she says, my earth body sculptures are not the final stage of a ritual, but a way and a means of asserting my emotional ties with nature and conceptualizing religion and culture. The second one is my work is basically in the tradition of a Neolithic artist. It has very little to do with most earth art. I'm not interested in the formal qualities of my materials, but they're emotional and sensual ones, end quote. So note there she's making a very distinct positioning of herself relative to American earth art, which obviously she is um, kind of on the tail end of rather than being right in the middle. Note that she's positioning herself in terms of the Neolithic. Um, she also, in the works on the left here, was interested in um, uh, the indigenous occupants of Cuba, although obviously she's inventing these kinds of uh, rock art. There's certainly no precedent for the kinds of works that she's uh, inscribed into the cave there. So starting with the Silhouetta series, what I want to do, this is sort of two parts, is look at how nature is figured in her work and then to understand how she talked about or thought about her emotional tie to it. So first up then, this series... Of all her works, as I mentioned, this is the one, this series is the one that's garnered the most attention. It's widely acknowledged to be her key aesthetic achievement. Mary Sabatino has argued that it's the core of her practice. Guy Brett has called it her great contribution to art. So generally it's dated from uh, 1973 to 1980. There is actually some debate about when it starts and which one is the first one but it can be described broadly as including all of the works which resulted from Mendieta either placing her body or um, constructing a surrogate form of herself or on what she regarded as maternal earth. And the resulting images, which you can see here, documented by, by slides and photographs behind me uh, by a Super 8 film, visualise this idea of emotional earth by showing her body or its imprint incorporated into various um, natural environments. And you can see here there's river banks, uh, the air, the land, and liminal zones of seashore and, liver, and also river bank. The films, there's obviously one film in this uh, exhibition, have only recently been argued to have been a crucial part of the series. Before that, people tended to look at the photographs and not realise that the films were part and parcel of the same series. So she saw her earth body sculptures in a number of different ways. She saw them as communion or a kind of merger with the landscape, um, as putting her stamp on the earth, and finally is animating or anthropomorphizing the earth. So quite three quite different spatial relations that I'll, I'll return to. So these complicated relations between figure and environment are inflected also by key themes that run right through her practice. So she's interested in cycles of nature, birth, growth, decay, 
and also, um, I guess, fundamental things like birth, death, eros. They, that's actually a quote from her that that's a central concern of her work. So these elemental themes and the variety of ways in which they're presented are the chief source of the visceral quality of the series. That is, the most basic inescapable facts of the life cycle are presented again and again across um, this series. Uh, obviously, the themes of birth, growth and decay are not present in every single image or film, but they emerge more forcefully when the series is considered as a whole. And obviously, this, this is just a very tiny section that we've got, selection that we've got here. So some images show the demise or the disintegration of the figure. I think I've flicked forward. So such as you can see, this is a sequence of colour slides. Uh, it was shot in Mexico and it shows waves moving over and destroying this um, red silhouette in the tidal zone. Uh, water also serves as an agent of dissolution and this film has been argued to be part of the Silhouette series as well. Um, this film traces the path of this, uh, the floral silhouette carried along and it's eventually broken up by this very strong river current. Uh, Charles Merriweather thinks this film is the first of the Silhouetta series. So you can see where this is 75. So he's arguing this is the beginning, not actually where she says the beginning is. And you note here, he calls this work uh, after a water goddess from Santiera. So Mendieta was very interested in Cubo-African religion and, and obviously she's interested in Teano um, uh, accounts of goddesses, which is what you can see over here on the left. So he's argued this is, this is the first of the series. Fire is also an element of destruction in two short films. So you can, this is a, both uh, shown as a film and obviously here this is a, a film still but it's also uh, as a slide. Um, and this work where you can, again, it's shown as a film but also as a series of slides. So you can see here this idea of the flames illuminating and also destroying the female figures. And obviously they're posed in this instance against the earth um, and this one against the sky. Uh, this work actually looks like it's the backdrop of the film behind me. So she's reused that um, silhouette uh, in the film where she actually inserts herself into the form after the fire obviously has been extinguished. So in all of these we have a sense of sort of nature as process or nature as a, a force, fire, um, water, air and so forth. So these images suggest life and growth including uh, photographs, the photograph that she saw as the first one in the series, which is uh, this one. So obviously Charles Merriweather thinks the other work from 75 is the first image, but she actually said this was the first image. And of course it's not a silhouette. It's her body in the tomb covered by uh, flowers. Uh, so she's lying on her, back, uh, on her back in this ancient Mexican tomb I guess looking almost like these flowers are sprouting out of her body. So you have a sort of strange image of life and decay at one and the same time. Uh, there are also works made with live material, um, such as this uh, figure, which is um, supporting grass. Uh, and 
in there's quite a lot of these images where life is sort of enmeshed with decay. So growth and fecundity is made possible by this idea of a, a sort of a soil out of which this growth is sprouting. From this show, obviously this one here, um, it's moss that she's um, made to grow in the form of um, her body. It's easier perhaps to see it up there. Um, oops. And this work where she's used a little bit of floral material to, again to create an outline. So she's often using um, living materials. Uh, so you get a sense of life enmeshed with decay uh, across all of these works that are actually um, using live material. Ultimately, obviously, all of these images uh, are subject to disappearance, uh, whether this is shown as in that sequence of uh, red silhouettes where the, the tide is actually destroying them. So you, you've got this sort of built-in idea of the silhouettes as all ephemeral. They're abandoned to the elements and will be reclaimed uh, by the earth, and that's actually Mendieta's expression. She saw these as, as being ephemeral and, and being reclaimed. So she's making insistently impermanent constructions and thereby kind of underscoring the future of the silhouettes, the time after their, crea their creation, or to bring these two moments together, the future anterior. In other words, we can say with certainty when looking at the silhouettes, this one, for example, will have melted and that other ones will have wilted, eroded, or washed away. So sort of something in the particular kinds of silhouettes that she's showing us that we know they will have gone. So the actual or imagined disappearance of the figures with its strong imitations of mortality gives the images, I think, a melancholic or a mournful quality that you kind of, you, you know they're not permanent. You know this is going to uh, melt. So at issue in the series are two types of disappearance of the body. The threat of extinction is underscored by another disappearance. So she stops, uh, her actual body stops appearing in the works around about 1975. And one of the consequences of her withdrawal is often seen that it becomes a more open relationship between the earth and the body. And if you look at some of these, the earlier one has very definitely her body, and some of these, it could be anybody's body. It's not specifically a feminine body. The outline isn't nearly as um, clear as, say, in the second one um, the, down from the beginning. So the relationship becomes necessarily more porous because the depicted or constructed body is continuous with the natural world. So it's a vivid demonstration of relational identity. The body is deeply dependent on the environment, being constructed from the very stuff of the environment. So the fact that you know, she's in nature, the figure-ground relationship is um, completely... Um, disrupted if you think of traditional senses of how the figure sits in relation to the ground. So the making of silhouette, silhouettes outdoors and with organic material um, has this kind of very visceral appeal and this idea of the dependence on brute matter is captured in this, this kind of mode of depiction. 
And the, this ins her insertion in the land has an immediate sensual appeal, both on account of her, flower, of her materials, so flowers, mud, ice, like this one, and the associations of plunging into the earth. And one might think of the latter as like you know, toes sunk into warm sand or hands working the soil, as well as being redolent of our final return to the elements. So that despite the disappearance of Mendieta herself from the frame, her body does continue to provide the template for all of these, whether it's just her height um, or, obviously, in that second one, the more exact form of her body, or flicking back here, you can see what I mean in terms of the more exact form of her body. So in that, you've got a very definite her um, silhouette. It's obviously coming forward with works like this, um, or that one, there's, there's not that particularity of her particular, uh, her shape. Uh, so this muted form of self-representation without individual figures uh, has been referred to by Louis Kamnitzer as, more, as kind of more poignant. He sees them as, as empty forms, which is quite an interesting way to think about a silhouette. Um, perhaps in some of the ones where there's growth in, they don't seem as empty. Uh, some, perhaps like that one, emptiness is a sort of very strong way in which you might interpret it. Um, but certainly emptiness might be a way of underscoring this idea of uh, vulnerability, um, that idea of um, things disappearing, like life disappearing. So certainly viewed as lacking or vulnerable, the silhouettes seem to address us as if they require something from us. Perhaps minimally, they need us to animate them to care about their obliteration. Or the demand may be more challenging, to, almost as though we're called to worry about their fate, to, present them, to prevent them from being consigned to the ground in the manner of a funeral ceremony. And obviously this sort of she's deliberately conjuring up that idea with some of the fire ones of kind of ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Uh, so we're, we're put in that position of being witnesses to a very brief existence. I mean, obviously this idea of disappearance whoops, is counterweighted by the repetition, the sheer repetition of her form again and again in all of these works. Um, so if disappearance is one way to think about the merger of the figure, then the silhouette, so if you think of it as a self-portrait, then it, it's underscoring that other relationship she wanted, this objectification of her existence that she's also wanting this series to convey. And some images obviously suggest this more strongly than others. Uh, the images where the figure is almost camouflaged, like this one, contrast with ones like the um, ice where obviously the, the uh, figure stands out um, from the environment. So some obviously brand the earth as it were claiming it with her signature form. And it's here obviously this serial method she uses is particularly evident. So repetition emphasises this series of captured moments when the figures are present. So you get presence sitting alongside disappearance. You've got both uh, combined in the work. And the sheer quantity of repetition, she made 100 in total, um, or over 100, I think. I don't, I'm not sure that anyone is, knows precisely how many she made. So she's got, on the one hand, this insistence on the body in nature, uh, which makes us uh, sort of understand the constancy as well as the variability of the body. 
So these photographs and films hold on to the series of moments when she was there pointing us towards the work of time and nature. So, it's, so she's sort of balancing that, um, that uh, conundrum. Uh, so she's interested in the relationship, um, this idea that I mentioned earlier, a merger with the earth, what she describes as a kind of submission to it, and I'm quoting her here, she said she wanted a voluntary submersion and total identification with nature. Uh, so that idea is where, yeah, I guess not so much this one, but that kind of one where she's barely there, it's like she's merged or this one where she could, that could just be um, moss. She's embedded her outline right on the rock. Um, you barely see her intrusion. Uh, she also claims the land. Um, her actual uh, comment there was that she was like a dog pissing on the ground, quite a graphic description, that she was seeing her marking in precisely those terms. So quite a territorial way, you know, obviously a very visceral description of how she saw herself as claiming ground. Uh, the third relation she describes that I mentioned earlier um, so she, was this idea of a personification of nature. Um, and when considered in this light, the silhouettes have a curious ancient quality. So they recall goddess imagery as well as ancient rock carvings. And obviously that gets picked up in this later work from 1980. She had a long-standing interest in the art of ancient cultures, uh, which suggests she was familiar with this kind of imagery. And initially when she was, she said when she was working in this way, she was thinking of... Um, Oh, actually, there's another one with her body. That's the one, the second one, where you can see her actual outline more uh, precisely. So when she started off, she said she saw her work as more within a kind of a Catholic mode. And you can see here the, the um, poor souls as part of the Last Judgment. Some of them have that um, hand above the you know, like the strange gesture upwards of, I guess it's beseeching, distress and so forth. So she initially saw herself as very much in that Catholic tradition and then she says as she continued to work, she was much more interested in the Neolithic. But intriguingly, Olga Viso found this image, I don't know how well you can see it at the back, there are candles that she's holding where there's a kind of... A woman with her hands up in a classic goddess slash Mendieta pose. So right at the bottom, where those two round, weird kind of guess bra-like structures are, is this woman, and above that are all the flowers. So that could equally have fed into the way in which she uh, worked with this particular um, gesture. So her most legible imagery certainly recalls the pose of the goddess with outstretched arms, uh, which uh, is familiar from Minoan, um, which you can see here, Minoan snake, snake goddess imagery, among other kind of ancient sculptures and reliefs. And you can see it in the work more clearly of her contemporaries, so Mary Beth Edelson, uh, Woman Rising. from So this is roughly the same period, 1974. She's got that same pose of the woman with hands above her head or beside her head in this instance, another one. Um, or artists like Carolee Schneeman where 
Um, this, this sort of snake goddess and the pose are obviously configured somewhat differently. She actually has snakes in this instance. Uh, so these are, that's in the case of uh, Schneemann, it's 63, so obviously much, much earlier than Mendieta. Whereas Mary Beth Edelston's interest in the goddess imagery is roughly the same time as um, Mendieta. Mendieta also has a variant of this goddess pose, which you can see here with the arms closer to the body. And I think I showed you one earlier, which had the grasses growing on. So you can see there that it's not the pose above the head. It's actually down um, beside the body. And there are at least three key poses she uses for these silhouettes. In the late 70s, the goddess pose is not used as much. Olga Vuso's noted she went for these more... Um, non-gender specific poses. So that whole play between the female body become, and the land becomes a bit more attenuated. And here, this work is seen as her King Tut inspired work. Uh, this is from 78. From about 77, she starts doing these kinds of poses where it's, um, I guess, more like a sarcophagus and perhaps suggestive of um, death. So a yet another kind of layer to these images. She has two other poses, uh, one with um, the one, this one here with contained kind of weird truncated arms, um, which has a less clear provenance, but is probably modelled on this kind of image um, from the, again, it's, in this instance, it's a Sardinian great mother. So she's working off various ways in which the goddess um, might be represented as well as kind of uh, starting to move away from that more obviously gender-specific representation of the body. So several comments have comment, uh, several critics have commented on the tension between this what ancient practice of drawing in and on nature and the modern distancing technology of film and photography. So she's integrating... Um, modern technology also allows to, her to complicate the this kind of future of the images. Um, so the photographs and slides in particular capture a traditional figurative mode of representing the live earth as well as suggesting entropic nature. So the anticipated dissolution of all of these obviously is sort of contained in the way she's using photography. So in other words, living nature is not simply the body of woman embedded in the land. Animate nature is also figured as different kinds of processes, either depicted or imagined. So erosion, decomposition, growth and so forth are all also suggested by the different silhouettes. Um, so this representation of nature as process uh, or force obviously contrasts with the short films um, where you see Mendieta in direct contact with the earth, such as the film behind me. Um, and these are, interestingly, probably her most stunningly clear representations of death and eros. So the short films, there's Genesis Buried in Mud, which I tried to borrow, but apparently... This work is, I think it's not yet digitised. So we were able to borrow this one, uh, Rock a Heart with Blood. They're both 1975 and both present this idea of an emotional bond with the earth. In Genesis, um, she's immersed in the earth and sort of coming, you slowly see her breathing coming through the mud. So you have this idea of birth and death sort of cohabiting in this image. Uh, 
and it's it's this sort of slow uh, revelation of her form. Uh, you sort of see her chest rising and falling as evidence of her breath, and yet she's buried. So it's a very uh, strange, dead, alive kind of image. So it seems to almost reverse the meaning of entombment in earth by entwining burial with birth uh, rather than death. Uh, Rock heart with blood, which is pretty much like the bookend, here you'll see, any of you haven't seen this already, the body, as it were, returns to earth. So the, it starts with her um, pouring red onto the heart and then it ends with her, um, you know, her fitting back into the Mendieta-sized niche. So you become aware of how strongly related the silhouettes are, obviously, to her very particular body. Uh, so she, it's a very... Uh, spare, uh, the gestures are very spare in this particular work and it sort of, she did train with one of the key um, Judson uh, church uh, dancers which gives the, I think, the crispness to the movements that you'll see in that work. Uh, so she's, she's sort of reuniting the body with its double and it's like a glove-like fit so the fi and the final moment obviously is this intimate contact with the earth, and it's not quite an embrace or a caress, but certainly it's in this domain of close communion, and it, it makes you sort of realise, seeing this this particular film of it, that idea of her body in relation to the earth that I think perhaps you don't get as forcefully in the photographs that the sort of traces when you actually see her body connecting to the earth you get a sense of her um, sense of her idea of the project uh, she talks about her intimate emotional tie between the earth and her body um, as uh, using this phrase, oneness with the earth, which obviously has uh, got quite romantic associations, that idea of being at one or dissolving into another entity. Uh, it's usually seen as a kind of mystical experience, what might be described as an oceanic feeling, to use one of um, Freud's particular phrases. Freud took this phrase from Romain Rolland, and for him, uh, he argues that impulse of oneness informs all, all religions. Um, and it's supposed to be, and I'm quoting here from Freud, a sensation of eternity, a feeling of something limitless, boundless, as it were, oceanic. Uh, and Freud further attempts to characterise this feeling and it quite closely correlates how Mendieta seems to be talking about it as this union with the earth, uh, but he describes it as a feeling of an indissoluble bond of being one with the external world as a whole. So it's a, an interesting way of thinking about the series, that that's her ambition for it. This idea of, I guess, bliss, um, weightlessness, I guess the feeling, if you think of yourself in the ocean, that feeling of being buoyed up is perhaps some way of thinking of what she means by this sort of oneness or, or if you think of the oneness as an oceanic feeling. So it's interesting that although that's how she said she felt when she was making all of these works, 
it's not probably, if you look at them, the predominant feeling of the resulting images. So it's, she certainly felt like she was um, bonding with the earth. But if you look at these and other works, um, this is one of the works that's in the show, obviously. I think it's sort of in the middle. Where is that one? Ah, there, right in the middle. This one where there's more of the landscape visible, uh, you get a sense of this as quite a desolate, deserted uh, part of the landscape. This one is taken in Iowa. It does suggest a kind of lonely figure in the landscape, perhaps suggesting like a challenge, if not a threat, to human dwelling and existence. So this is somewhat contrary to oneness with the universe. Uh, similarly, the traces of the solitary figure often underscore um, aloneness, and some of the other ones you'll notice um, similarly have that feeling. It's not often you get much of an expanse in many of the works in this series. More often they're very tightly framed, but when you do get this larger vista, it is this you know, little figure in this fairly unremarkable slice of landscape. It's not as though this is a particularly um, lovely bit of river or a particularly lovely bit of river bank. It's um, quite an unremarkable slice of land that she's placed her body in. And I think that underscores that sense of perhaps isolation, melancholy, um, perhaps even pushing it to loneliness that might come through the series. So this is quite different to how she's talking about the emotional tie. She's saying doing them she felt this oneness, but when we look at them I'm not sure that we necessarily read them in the same way. Uh, so the, the emotional tie we might see in the image is more complicated, the idea of euphoric oneness with the universe. Um, so there's perhaps a dark edge to the union of the body and the land that makes the tie more ambivalent than joyful communion. Um, and the ambivalence is even more evident in images where the figure is very tightly framed and there's no horizon or landscape as such. So have I got, no I haven't, um, flicking back, which, uh, find a tighter one. Perhaps ones like even that one is a little bit vertiginous, the fact that you, you haven't got a horizon line. It's quite a tight framing around that icy figure. Uh, so this, I think this tight framing coupled with this, and you can see it very much in this one, the persistent tilt of the picture plane, which you'll notice across a number of these, makes the images just a little bit disorienting and claustrophobic. And the latter term recalls the dual, me the dual meanings of being encompassed by the earth. It can just as easily mean being swallowed up by it as being supported. So it's an ambivalence about enclosure is a feature, I think, when you start looking at across all of the images. And these negative and positive meanings of being encompassed or enclosed I've used um, the work of American psychologist Sylvan Tompkins to look at. He notes that there's both a positive and a negative meaning of this word cla uh, cla claustral, claustral, not actually sure, claustral, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say it, claustral joy is, is the positive one, which might mean a supportive enveloping environment, such as one might experience in solitude, communing with nature, 
or it could be the interpenetration of the mutual embrace where each person is inside one another. So it could be this sort of positive sense of coming to two things coming together, either two people or a person and nature. But equally, it can mean the unpleasant sense of restriction, suffocation and confinement that comes with cla uh, claustrophobia. So the fact that that claustral is both about a joyful coming together but also about suffocation. And there might, I think, there's sort of something of that dimension in her work, that it's not just this um, positive version of nature. Um, Tompkins notes how memory or fantasy of the intrauterine state underpins these contrasting senses of enclosure. So sort of the good enclosure is being void up and the bad enclosure is being restricted. Uh, so Mendieta's images combine a ritualised communion with nature, a celebration of its power and diversity in which the body participates, and paradoxically alongside the celebration there's also a sense of immobility and restriction, and that certainly comes through um, some of the works. Like, um, you, know, you could see that as being stuck to the earth or stuck to the rock rather than communing with it. Um, so this ambivalent sense of enclosure, constricting and threatening as well as supportive, is perhaps why her images are frequently described as haunting, chilling, powerful, moving and uncanny. So it is that she's both providing you with a positive view of nature and this other kind of darker um, underside. So it's an ambivalent conception of emotional ties that I'm suggesting we might have when we look at her images as opposed to actually how she's saying she felt when she made them. This also correlates with Freud's account of the primary identification. The infant's early relation to the mother is similarly seen in these terms, um, that it's as much linked to destruction, so devouring identification, this, the, the, the idea of destroying the very thing that's desired. So merger then that she's talking about um, could combine both love and hate. It's not just love, it could also have, so it's binding and unbinding. Uh, and one psychoanalyst, Borsch Jakobsen, concludes it's only in the imaginary, it's only in the amorous destruction of the object and the cannibal-like non-relation with the other that death and life are born. So again, kind of bringing them, bringing the very two things that she was interested in, life and death, together. Um, and he argues, you know, how we become sort of separate entities is predicated on those kinds of ways we incorporate um, our environment. So a major source of the uneasiness about her images is precisely the confusion perhaps about who or what is incorporating whom. So is the figure incorporating the land or is the land incorporating the figure? So you could see how they sort of move in different ways. So here the power of these three intertwined relations that I started with between body and land come into play and there's an, a sort of a slippage across those different relations. So the figure can be considered as personified and active, um, rendered passive and at the mercy of nature or alternatively in dialogue with nature where both are active. So I think across all the works you can, have, you can read different ones in different ways. Each way of thinking about the silhouettes is in a sense haunted by the others. 
So rather like an optical illusion, it's hard to see or imagine all three simultaneously. Um, the other permutations or possibilities create the kind of um, temporal lag that characterised the haunting idea. So often people say it's haunting and perhaps they are haunting precisely because there are these other permutations that are kind of in the wings when you look at um, different works. So while they're hard to think together, these alternative ways of configuring the earth body nonetheless disturb the straightforward perception of the series. The complicated permutations around figure ground relations are more, unset are more unsettling when birth is linked with death and emotional ties are at once a bond of love and potentially a form of annexation. Because obviously, remember, she was saying it was... She felt like she was a dog pissing, so she's actually herself giving a somewhat um, destructive kind of account of how she's interacting with the earth. Um, so I might stop there, having given you a number of um, the layers, if you like, of this um, series on the right. 